Quick disclaimer, there's some brief but very specific adult stuff this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in Egyptian mythology with the conflict between Horus and Set for dominion over Egypt. You'll see what you can put in your enemy's food to humiliate him in front of his friends. And whatever you're thinking, it's way worse. The creature this week is Vegetable Man from West Virginia. And you'll see why you want to eat your vegetables before your vegetables eat you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 104, The First Avenger. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Hey everybody, Spotify is making it easy for you to stream Myths and Legends, and others like it, on your mobile device, desktop app, and smart speaker. Simply open the app, click on the Browse channel, and then click on the Podcast section. You can stay thoroughly entertained during your commute to work, that drive home, and your downtime, now thanks to Spotify. Previously on Egyptian mythology, Osiris, the first pharaoh after Ra, found himself tricked and murdered by his own brother, Set, who then took over the throne. Posthumously reassembled and briefly brought back to life, Osiris managed to conceive a son, Horus, with his wife, Isis. The boy was raised in secret until Isis challenged Set's right to rule at the Council of the Gods. By tricking her brother-in-law, she secured the throne for her son when he came of age, and Set finally fled to the south with his followers. I know I say this all the time, but there really is no one official version of these myths. Even more than most, these are just all over the place. Basically, Everything we talk about from today is from Egyptian mythology. Somewhere. Just from different versions out there. I've stitched them together to give a more complete picture of the Horus versus Set conflict. But just keep that in mind if you decide to dive into Egyptian mythology yourself. And the idea that Horus would take his father's throne, while it might not seem like such a big deal today, was actually pretty groundbreaking. Remember, Ra was essentially tricked into giving up his throne. So there weren't any rules for succession. It boiled down to two options. Set or Horus. Set was Osiris's older brother, and yes, was a bad guy, but also slew the Serpent of Darkness on a daily basis to protect humans and gods alike, so he had some merit. Horus, on the other hand, was an untested child. Osiris's son, if not for millennia of primogenitor drilled into our collective minds, I can't imagine anyone really thinking Horus was a good fit for the job. Still, he prevailed and took the throne. In some versions, Isis tricked Set. In others, the Sky Mother threatened to merge the sky and the earth in eternal and undying flames if Horus was not named king after his father. You know, tomato, tomato. Anyway, that's what happened. Horus was named king by the Council of the Gods. And Set? Well, Set was not happy about it at all. When he's grown... Let him come against me, Set said. I'll slay him and feast on his flesh, and I'll become king indeed. Horus had only been a boy when he heard those words at the council. His mother, Isis, had transformed into Set's wife to trick him into giving up the throne that he had stolen after he murdered the somewhat rightful king, Osiris. Horus was Osiris's son, but he had never known his father. On account of being conceived after the god had already died, his mother had reassembled the body solely for that purpose, so that Osiris could have an heir to the throne, so that Osiris could have an avenger. 
Horace knew the reason for his existence, for as long as he had been in existence, but he really felt it that day at the council, the day he became pharaoh of Egypt. Set had fled at that moment to the south of Egypt, to a land that would be more receptive to him. Horus had also left. Even though he was pharaoh, he was still a boy. He was a boy born for one purpose, and he needed to start his training. He said goodbye to the assembled gods in the north region before beginning his journey to the sea. When he reached the water, his mother was already there and stood waiting by a small boat. Horus sneered and squinted into the distance behind her. Was that an island? Horus didn't recall an island being so close to the harbor before. Well, it was. It was the island of Chemis, his birthplace. He had heard about it before, but he had never seen it. That was probably because it moved. It was the one place Set wouldn't be able to get to him because it would set adrift in the ocean and it wouldn't return until he was ready. Isis pushed the boat into the water and began rowing. Horus watched as the island grew. The boat drifted past the reeds and finally beached on the island sand. Isis explained that everyone knew the war with Set was coming and Horus was the only one who could stop the evil god, though not as he was. The next time she saw him, Horus would be ready. It might be months, it might be years, but when he returned, he'd be able to truly take his place on the throne and defend his rule against Set. Horus looked at his mother's face. He didn't want to just defend against Set. He wanted to destroy him. Isis smiled. That day would come. But on that day, Horus wouldn't fight alone. He would be there. Who? Horus asked, his eyes following his mother's hand as she stretched her arm inland. There would be a fire burning there. Horus would see. Isis embraced Horus and let him go become the man he was destined to be. Horus crept through the forest before registering a crackling up ahead. Through the leaves, a man sat feeding a fire. It was the only other person he had seen on this island so far. Cautiously, he parted the leaves and a look of shock spread across his face. There, by the fire, was a man, or parts of a man. He had clearly been torn apart and stitched back together. The man turned to Horace and pursed his lips. Hi, son. Osiris, despite having been betrayed and murdered by his brother, torn to pieces, reassembled and briefly brought back to life before dying again, sometimes got his hands on a couple of day passes out of the Duat, or the Realm of the Dead. I mean, he was king of the Realm of the Dead, having been the first mummy and the most high-profile god to be sent there at the time. So, like your boss that comes in at 10 and leaves at 3, no one can really say anything. Osiris can apparently take short trips to the land of the living. Think of him like one of the spirit Jedis that can exist in our world for a time. He's not back completely, but he can do some things. For instance, he can train his son on a relentless quest for vengeance over his own death. Like I said, Horace knew the reason he'd been born. He knew his destiny, and he was ready to get started. Neither party really needed to exchange words. And so, Horace's training began. Instead of a fun little green backpack guy teaching you how to do flips and use the force and stuff, Horace had his dour ghost dad, who looked like a Frankenstein pharaoh. And I know Frankenstein is the name of the scientist and not the monster. Please don't send me an email. Anyway, weeks, months, or years passed like this. I'm not exactly sure. But Horace trained nonstop. He didn't even notice the time passing. He learned to use all manner of weapons, how to fight without weapons, how to turn into animals, and how to use a staggering amount of magic. 
Finally, one day, Osiris sat with his son, asking him what the noblest thing a man could do was. Even if Horus had another opinion, he could read the room, and he knew the right thing to say. He replied that the noblest thing a man could do was to avenge his father and mother for the evil done to them. Osiris didn't stop there. He asked his son what creature would be the most useful to take in a battle. Horus didn't wait before he spat back. Horse, uh, wrong. You're wrong, Osiris replied. The right answer was lion. A lion would be of greater assistance in battle than a horse. Oh yeah, Horus replied. It would be if a man needed assistance. With that mic drop, he then felt a thud, and all the trees shuddered at once. Horus reached for his weapon and looked to his father, but the Frankenstein ghost dad was smiling. Horus's training was complete. The time had come for him to lead his followers into battle against Set. Except, Horus was confused. His followers? His father nodded and motioned to the beach. Yep, go have a look. Horus took a few steps and then turned to look back to his father for reassurance. But Osiris was gone. His time in the world of the living was over, and he returned to the land of the dead to prepare for that final battle against Set. Horus walked out to see the gods standing before the assembled group of men and women all ready to fight Set on his behalf. Isis looked on her son with pride. He was now ready to take his place on the throne. He was now ready to avenge his father's murder. Hours later, Horus and the god Harmachus, who was also just kind of another name for Horus, were walking along the Nile. Harmachus explained to Horus that he had magic, and with Horus's power, he could look into Horus's eyes and see his future and know things that he could not otherwise know. Horus agreed, and Harmachus started chanting, placing his fingers on Horus's temples. The god's eyes shined like the sun, and Harmachus looked into them. He inspected Horus's future. He was actually having a really hard time finding Set at all. He was just seeing a giant black pig hiding in the reeds. Did that ring any bells? A giant black boar attacking him from the reeds? No? Hmm. Oh, well, here's something else. I'm seeing you and some other guy staring into your glowing eyes. Oh, wait a second. Is that me? That's me! Hermachus looked into the reeds and saw a giant black pig snorting right before it charged. Horace blinked and his eyes went back to normal, but not before the giant black pig bowled him over. It was when he was on his back that he saw... For the first time in years, for the first time since he had become Pharaoh and the man threatened his life, that he saw his uncle, Set, standing over him. Oh, he was the pig. That makes sense, Harmachus uttered and then ran frantically for help. Horus was paralyzed in fear as Set looked him up and down. He expected better from a son of Osiris, the rightful Pharaoh. Well, at least now Set knew how they were going to locate him. The nail on Set's right thumb grew. It grew long and sharp. Set grabbed him by the hair and pulled him close. By the time the other gods came to Horus's aid, Set had already made his escape. They looked on Horus, hand covering the bloody, gaping hole where his left eye had been. The war had begun, and Set had won the first battle. Thoth, the god of wisdom and magic, had good news and bad news. The good news? 
Set hadn't destroyed the Eye of Horus. He couldn't. It was the Eye of a God, and it had great power. The bad news? He had torn it into six pieces and hidden them all over creation. Thoth would start the search, but in the meantime, Horus couldn't rely on that magic to find Set. He needed to be ready whenever his uncle attacked. Shouts began outside, followed by screams. Huh, turned out Horus needed to be ready right now. Set was attacking again. It wasn't just one pig this time, but the entirety of Set's army, all of his worshippers and followers that he had taken to the south of Egypt. They had come back to seize the throne. Horus threw a patch over his left eye, stepped outside to face the army, and took off into the sky. Turning into a shining and shimmering golden disk, he looked on the swarms and swarms of humans pouring into Memphis and killing his followers, and far off, he could see Set watching and commanding them. That's when he had an idea. There were things he could do to Set's followers that he couldn't do to a god. Above the attacking force, Horus's voice boomed, telling them that their eyes shall not see, and their minds shall be darkened likewise. The men stopped for a moment. Was that was that golden shimmering disc up in the sky talking to them? But then they realized that they couldn't understand the language and didn't recognize the men standing next to them. A realization washed over Set's army at once. The enemy had come among them in disguise. They had to kill him. Set watched as his army left Horus alone and turned to tear itself apart. From the sky, Horus watched as the army that remained retreated. Horus had won the second battle. It was a few weeks later when, again, they heard screams coming from the south. Now, I didn't know this until a few months ago, but a hippopotamus, it can move. They can run as fast as 19 miles per hour despite their stubby little legs and heavy weight. For some context, Usain Bolt ran the 100-meter dash at 23 miles per hour, just 4 miles per hour faster than a hippopotamus. According to the BBC, the hippo is the world's deadliest large land mammal, and they're extremely aggressive. That's why people panicked when... Swarming out of the Nile came dozens of hippopotami alongside their silver medal winner for a deadly African creature, the crocodile. Set was sure he had Horus this time. There was no way the young guy could turn these warriors against one another. Unfortunately for Set, Horus's first one had bolstered his recruitment efforts for his followers and worshippers. In the days since he had returned, Horus had also invented iron weapons in his downtime between fights, so pushing back the hippopotami and crocodiles while extremely dangerous and likely resulting in a lot of deaths, was successful, and Set and his troops were bested once again. We'll watch this war go on and on, but that will be right after this. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S., through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit The war raged on, not for days or weeks or months, but for years, for decades. And while Horus had numbers in both people and gods on his side, Set had power. Each battle escalated the tensions, and attacks became more direct plots for revenge. In one particular episode, Set surprised Horus and sexually assaulted the guy. To get back at him, Horus put his seed on the lettuce leaves that Set ended up eating, and then, the next time Set confronted him, commanded it to come out of Set. It replied, 
that's right, it could talk, and asked how it should exit. So Horace thought about it and then decided, hmm, why not his ears? It obeyed and formed a golden disc above Set's head, which then immediately moved to crown Horace and declare him the winner of whatever in the world that was. Another time, Set challenged Horace to a duel in the river, where they would both turn into hippopotami, submerge themselves in the water, and the first person to come up for air, or come up because he was dead, would forfeit all right to be Pharaoh. Tired of watching his followers die, and also tired of fighting crocodiles, Horace agreed to the match. So both gods turned into hippopotami and submerged themselves in the river. Isis, Horace's mother, was nervous. She knew her son was strong, but she knew her brother-in-law was stronger. He had fought the Serpent of Darkness on a daily basis, and he had killed Osiris, the king of the gods. Isis had to do something to help her son, so she fashioned an iron spear and crouched by the riverbanks as the water churned and bubbled with blood, the fight raging beneath the surface. The moment she thought she had a clear shot, she took it. Isis threw the spear, and she hit her son. She could see the hippo screaming under the surface and immediately commanded the spear to let her child go. Obediently, the barbs relaxed and the spear returned to her. Okay, that was a mistake. Who knew hitting a nearly identical hippo in blood-clouded water would be so difficult? She threw the spear again, and this time, it hit its target. Set surfaced and wailed, asking his sister-in-law why she was hurting him. In the moment, Isis began to waver. Horace surfaced too and screamed at his mom, asking what she was doing. She commanded the spear to return, but Set declared that with this interference, the fight was over. Set submerged again and disappeared. Horace transformed back into his normal form and swam to the riverbanks in a huff. His mother sat on the sand, contrite. She could see that Horace was mad with her and she apologized for interfering with the fight. It wouldn't happen again. Horace stood. Oh, she misunderstood him. He wasn't mad that she interfered. No, he was mad that she let Set go. Really mad. With that, he pulled out his sword and chopped off his mother's head. Of course, as his anger abated moments later, he looked down in horror at what he had done in his rage. He scooped up her lifeless body, chased down her rolling head, and brought it to the one man who could help. When Thoth looked on the head and body of Isis, he agreed. Yeah, this was a doozy. She was probably already on her way to the land of the dead, so he couldn't just put her head back on her body and voila, this wasn't a grim fairy tale. No, at this stage, the situation required a bit more finesse. It required a cow head. 10 minutes and one decapitated cow later, Isis sat up on the table, bellowed, narrowed her cow eyes at her son and announced that she didn't want to talk about it. And this is the explanation for the cow head headdresses Isis is often depicted as wearing. Anyway, the war for the throne continued up and down the Nile. Sometimes Horus attacked Set. Sometimes Set attacked Horus, but neither was able to strike a decisive blow until the battle of the stinking head. One of the many battles had just ended, this time in Horus's favor, and Set's followers were beating a retreat. When the Nile began to bubble, and the ground shook all around them. Set's people stopped retreating for a moment and stood to watch. They all knew what or who was in the river. Of course, it was Set, 
who had taken the form of a massive monster with an animal head. I guess his magic couldn't quite get him all the way there, because the head was in rough shape. It was already half dead and decaying and smelled pretty horrible. Thus, the battle became known as the Battle of the Stinking Head. Horus transformed into a hawk and attacked from the air. He turned into a hippo and attacked from the ground. And finally, he turned into a crocodile and bit Set from the water. Set flailed and punched as best he could, until Horus finally brought the giant head to his knees and found an opening. Horus ran back to his iron mace laying on the shore of the river, and he brought it down hard on the stinking head. Set instantly fell unconscious, at which point Horus ordered his followers to bind him and drag him from the river to the Council of the Gods. Now, Horus knew he couldn't just kill Set. He had to receive permission from Ra first. Almost as soon as he arrived at the council, a prophet also arrived with a message. Set would be punished by Horus, and Horus was to do to him what he did to Osiris. There was no hesitation. Horus gripped his sword, and seconds later, the stinking head rolled from Set's body. And they probably burned it or something. It was very stinky. And just like that, it was over. The gods rejoiced, and Horus finally ruled as pharaoh over all of Egypt. But one god in particular, Thoth, did not celebrate with Horus and the others. He furrowed his brow from the back of the crowd and left. This death of Set defied all prophecy. It didn't make sense, and yet, they had all seen Set be beheaded before the council. The war that raged for years on end was finally over. How could he argue with that? No one had seen, and no one would know for weeks to come, however, that right before the blade fell, Set's spirit actually left his body and possessed one of his followers from the group of men that had been forced to watch the punishment in order to pass along the news to the south that their leader was dead. That man had been prepared for just this purpose, and as the prisoners were being led away next to the river, the spirit of Set leapt once again into a black snake who slithered into a hole on the riverbank. Everyone thought Set was dead, of course, and so Harmachus transformed into a sphinx, a creature with the body of a lion and the head of a man, and went to work killing any of Set's followers that remained. That's actually the origin of the Great Sphinx of Giza. It's a depiction of Harmachus. It wasn't called a sphinx, though. It was named by the Greeks when they encountered it hundreds of years later. It wasn't long before Thoth approached Horus, the now undisputed pharaoh, to tell him that it wasn't exactly over. A shadow was growing again in the south. Set hadn't died after the Battle of the Stinking Head. His spirit had escaped Voldemort style and fled into snakes that made their way south. It took Thoth too long, too. Set had already grown too much. He was almost back to full strength. He was coming for them. Thoth could see his following and groan, too. Everyone had watched Set die and then return. All signs suggested that nothing could stop him. Thoth knew horses might, and he knew sets. This would be their final battle. Horus heard the message and decided he would not wait for Set to grow to full power and wage war in his land. No, he would take the fight to his uncle and end this once and for all. There was no way a force the size of Horus's could move quietly down the river. It was just impossible. An armada followed behind the son of Osiris, who stood in the lead boat. He wasn't going to be a shimmering disc or hippo or something for this fight. Nope. He would go as Horus, son of Osiris. I mean, he would be a 12-foot-tall version of Horus, son of Osiris, with an imposing harpoon, but he was still basically himself. Set, apparently, had not chosen that game plan. 
because there, on the island ahead, stood a massive red hippo, flanked and backed by Set's followers. The hippo roared and Horus leapt. The final battle had begun. Set's first move was to call down darkness onto the land and command the Nile to flood, so as to drown his enemies. It was complete chaos. Both armies fought with everything they had, despite struggling and drowning in the Nile swells around them. The sporting gods battled in the Nile, and 12-foot-tall Horus with his 30-foot-long spear grappled with Set. The red hippo, however, was so enormous that he could straddle the Nile. Having pushed back Horus's men, Set threw his nephew down into the water and dove after him to crush the body of Horus in his teeth. He will become Pharaoh again. He couldn't help but enjoy this moment. The moment it all ended. The water bubbled and frothed before turning red. The battleground grew still. Everyone held their breath, knowing that this was the last throw. Whoever surfaced will be victorious once and for all. The red hippo rose from the water, and Set's followers cheered before falling silent in horror. The red hippo wasn't rising at all. He was being pushed by a spear lodged in his brain. Horus was victorious. Set, the evil one, was dead. Horus knew Set hadn't been expecting his demise when he went in for the kill. There was no way that he would have had enough time to transfer his consciousness to another host. His uncle was dead, and the battle for Egypt was over. It said that after that battle, darkness passed from the earth for a time, and peace reigned once again in Egypt. Horus sat on his father's throne, and was third in the line of pharaohs that would stretch on through the centuries. Each year, priests would celebrate his victory over the enemies of Osiris at the temple they constructed in his honor. Horus reigned for hundreds upon hundreds of years. No one knew who was the first to go, but everyone knew the time had come. The days of gods walking upon the earth had ended. Each successor of Horus, each pharaoh, though human, was believed to have the soul of a god. In the streets of Memphis, long after the time of gods had come to an end, an old beggar passed invisibly in the crowd. Even if he wasn't the god of magic, no one would have seen him pass by. He had remained on earth long after all the others, because he still had a purpose. It had been given to him long ago by his pharaoh, and he intended to see it through to the end. The more visions revealed themselves, the more he realized that this task was the most important one in the universe. The fate of the earth hung in his ability to find them all, and his visions had led him here. It was almost done. The vendor didn't realize what he had in these artifacts. To him, it was just a heap of junk. Thoth produced enough gold to buy the whole pile, though he walked away with a single piece no larger than a raisin. The vendor blinked, and the stranger was gone. In an instant, Thoth was back at the place that had once been the Council of the Gods. It had been centuries since he had been there, since he had collected another piece. Now, it was complete. Thoth held the one piece he had just obtained next to the five others. It flew to them and snapped into place like a magnet, and together, they began to glow. Thoth took a step back and smiled. The Eye of Horus that Set had gouged out and ripped apart centuries ago was complete again. Even Horus didn't know its true power, but it could be used not only to see the future, but to return the dead to life. Even a dead god. Even 
Osiris. And that was good, because they would need the Lord of the Land of the Dead to return and ride one more time in battle against his brother, because death could not hold set. He, too, was returning, and their final battle would decide the fate of the world. Of course, we are in no way done with Egyptian mythology, so don't worry. It just made sense to talk about the end of the time of the gods in this episode, because it relates to the Horus-Set conflict. But we will do more episodes on Egyptian mythology. I can kind of elaborate on it a little bit now, but these myths are all over the place, even by myth standards. For instance, the Eye of Horus. Aside from the jackal-headed Anubis, the Eye might be the single most identifiable thing from Egyptian mythology. Well, in some versions, he doesn't lose it. In some, he loses both eyes, but they are restored by another god. In some, he loses the left, and others the right. In some, he uses it to bring his dad back. In others, he just plants it and grows a tree. And that's just one example. Anyway, next week, we're telling the stories of Renard the Fox from European folklore. It's like if George R.R. R. Martin, the writer of the Game of Thrones books, decided to reboot the Redwall universe. It's amazing. I want to say thanks to McDougal, Nat844748, Shroud of Sin City, Freddy Frothen, Myths and Legends, I don't know how they got that name, but, you know, good for them. Caitlin568, Myth's Biggest Fan, It's Official, Amber Rose 91 Mo Jeffs, Lily DeValley, DDuggio, G-Man00, Hiberian, Orange Computer, and Griffin Bros. For the reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. And yes, there is also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a cardboard cat turntable, it's a scratching post that's also a turntable, which is either a brilliant idea or really, really bad. You can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad free versions of the show that won't awaken a creative desiring cat, but also maybe get them out of the house for a few nights a week to do some DJing. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Vegetable Man from West Virginia in the US. The Vegetable Man is neither a vegetable nor a man. In the late 1960s, a man by the name of Jennings Frederick was in the woods bow hunting woodchucks outside of Fairmont, West Virginia. He stepped out into a clearing to see something he mistook for a tree. It loomed over him with a green, vegetable stalk-like frame. Its arms were no bigger around than a quarter, and its whole body resembled the stalk of a plant in shape and color. Jennings' eyes snaked down the stalks to see the thing's fingers. They were seven inches long, and at the area where the human knuckle would be, they simply stopped. There was a suction cup in the place of the rest of the finger, and in the middle of the suction cup was a long, thin needle. Then it talked to him. It sounded high-pitched, like someone rewinding a tape recorder. Jennings didn't speak the language, but somehow he knew what it meant. The thing told Jennings that Jennings need not fear it. It came as a friend and knew of humans. It came in peace and just wished for some medical assistance. It needed Jennings' help. Before Jennings could even react, the vegetable man decided to treat itself to some medical assistance. The creature's hand flew to Jennings' arm and suction cups affixed themselves to his skin. He felt the needle stab into his arm and for two minutes, the creature took his blood. He claims that during this time, he was put into a trance by the creature and by the time he recovered, the non-consensual blood donation was finished and the creature was bounding off over the next hill. Jennings did not feel the need to follow and ran straight home. Jennings Frederick was the only person to ever see the vegetable man 
who he claims was an alien. He kept it a secret though, and for eight years, he maintained that the marks on his arm were from him stumbling into a briar patch. He finally spoke up to a man by the name of Gray Barker, an author, paranormal investigator, and occasional hoaxer. Gray Barker made a lot of money off of writing about the paranormal and actually introduced the notion of the men in black. He published the Vegetable Man story in a newsletter and the rest was history, or pseudo-history. Whatever we call the second-hand, almost a decade-old account of a vegetable man in the newsletter of a paranormal investigator and occasional hoaxer. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>